Well, good afternoon, all of you. I was just calculating a little earlier. It's been almost four months since I was able to sit here and give a, should I say live sermon, at least. I don't know how lively they are, but at least since I spoke. So it's good to be back. I think, as you all know, I had a near-death experience and uh, have recovered quite well. I'm feeling pretty good now for the most part and seem to be getting stronger day by day. And uh, had some blood tests done and my uh, functions are getting better uh, across the board. So uh, I thank God for a reprieve and an extension of life, if you will. Uh, hopefully dedicated and committed even deeper to doing the things that he wants done. That's the key to that, to everything, is serving God, um, the part of all of us, uh, in order to please him. So I'm thankful to be back. <clears throat> One item I wanted to mention before getting into the sermon per se is, uh, I think we're all familiar now with the three eclipses, that, uh, starting with August of 2017, have been crossing and are scheduled to cross the U.S. Uh, one more time. And the first one, I believe, had to do with uh, Amos 8, because it said the sun would grow dark at noonday, and then it goes on down to show that death and destruction would soon follow thereafter. Uh, he had showed Amos a basket of summer fruit, and that did come in during the summer in August. Uh, there again, at the end of, I believe, the 430 years of Ezekiel, and 70 years of the captivity Jeremiah spoke of, where houses would be built and so on, and we did build church houses across the country and around the nation, or around the world, and... All that occurred just before that uh, July and August, I believe, just before that uh, eclipse occurred. So, big events uh, were signaled there, I do believe. <clears throat> and he said there would be a famine of the word as well in that same chapter at the end. Now, that eclipse started on the west coast of Oregon, came across the middle of the United States at about noon, and came out uh, in South Carolina, which I think may be significant as well. But it crossed seven cities named, or towns named Salem, coming across the United States. Uh, now, how can that be? But it did, starting with Salem, Oregon, and then in I saw named all the states that had a Salem in them, which is short for Jerusalem. Uh, then we had the one right after the feast. Uh, the Jewish thing started happening, or the Edomite thing, I think, in Israel. Uh, on the last great day of the feast, just before that eclipse, and the 
retribution against the Palestinians didn't begin until almost the day of the eclipse. It might have been a day or two before or after. I don't remember for sure. But there's been trouble in the Middle East ever since. And we have a great deal of our Navy there. And we're supporting the nation of Israel in their massacre of the Palestinians. And we're the only ones who voted in the UN to allow that to continue. We vetoed a bill or a measure that said it should be stopped. So the U.S. is looking very bad in the eyes of the whole world, really. And the Yemenis, that little third-rate nation, has absolutely stymied our attempt to keep the Red Sea and the Gulf of Suez open, uh, where we're spending two and three million dollar missiles to drop one two thousand dollar drone aimed at our ships or other people's ships. So I still believe, and it appears to be heading that way, that Daniel eight does re, uh, does. Uh, talk about the goat from the west that will cross not touching the ground. We've already uh, destroyed in the past Iraq, the Medes, and the Persians apparently are essentially Iran. They claim that they are, and that appears to be the case. But that goat would destroy the horns or break the horns of the Medes and the Persians. So I think that the Zionist Edomite influence in Washington, D.C. is very, very heavy. And most of our people in the Congress have been bought off by Zionist Jews, of whom we have Rockefellers and Rothschilds and on and on and on. So I don't want to rehearse all of that, but... It does appear that Israel is pushing us to invade Iran. That may, choose, may prove to be quite a task. They have quite a military and they've dug underground and have protected a lot of things, knowing that this would come to a head at some point. So that is in the works. And I think it is the goal and the purpose of the Pentagon and our Congress to do just that, to destroy Iran. But Daniel also goes on to say that after we break those two horns, our horn will be broken, and it appears that that is coming very close to fruition. I don't know how soon after, but probably fairly soon after, because Russia, China, and any number of nations are going to combine as Psalm 83 shows, and as Jeremiah 50 and 51 do, that the king of the north and many nations will come against and take America down. Very clear. So, now we have the third uh, eclipse going to occur on April 8th, which is the first day of the first month of the new year in God's heavenly calendar. 
and some big things are promised for the first month in whichever year it occurs, let me be quick to say, uh, and it looks like world events are occurring fast enough that it could even be this year, or certainly by next year, I'm not making a prediction, I don't know, but we're told to look at the leaves on the trees, and they're turning brown awfully fast, it seems. So, it can't be too far away, and even Ezekiel said, when the three, the 430 years were accomplished, each day he laid down would equal a year. Since I think the first uh, permanent collie in America started 430 years later was August of 2017. But about that, Ezekiel went on to say, it is come, it is come, it is a short while, it is here, uh, it won't be like the echoing again of the mountains. Uh, I said that 12 or 13 times right there about it. So it would not be a long period of time again. And now we are coming upon six and a half years uh, since that first eclipse and the end of, I think, the 430. So it would seem that for him to say it as many times as he did, it's fairly close. It won't be a long, long time again. And to you and me, time goes by pretty fast. To God, it doesn't matter, but to us, and Ezekiel was addressing us. It won't be a long time in our estimation or our understanding. So we'll see how that goes. But this third eclipse is coming up, which crosses the other two. Starts at Eagle Pass, Texas, if you will, coming into the U.S., which is ground zero for a lot of our attention in this country today about the, the, the army invading us from the south. Uh, ironic, I guess. But this third eclipse, some of you may have read or heard this by now, it's, I just came across it a few days ago, that this third eclipse that crosses the other two and forms uh, an alpha and an omega. Christ said in the book of Revelation, I think three times, three or four, that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And it would seem that that one, just coming up in April, crossing the other two and finishing the Aleph, the A on its side, first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, will form two Tavs, which is the Hebrew word for the end. Christ was using Greek when he said Alpha and Omega, but in the Old Testament it would be Aleph and Tav. And I think that God would use the Hebrew instead of the Greek in this case because it goes back to all the history of man and brings it forward to today. So, uh, in any case, Hebrew or Greek, it forms a beginning and an end. Now, the interesting thing is that when that eclipse on October, October, April 8th comes across Texas, it begins at Eagle Pass, as I said. But it crosses seven towns named Nineveh as it goes across the U.S. It also crosses one town in Texas named Jonah. 
I don't know how coincidental that could possibly be, since the one showed seven towns or cities of Salem, peace, and God's warning to Nineveh through Jonah was if they didn't repent, they would all die going to captivity. Uh, and maybe this is God's last and final warning to the United States passing over seven Ninevehs and one Jonah to tell us, if you don't repent now, it's all over. Now, I think he made that judgment in 2017 with that first eclipse that we were going down and there would be blood in the streets and violence and people in quietness putting people into graves. But maybe he's giving one last warning to do as Nineveh did, and that is repent. But he knows, and you and I know, that America is not going to repent. Uh, they will not recognize the significance for the most part, and they'll be taken unawares, as Revelation says. Uh, actually, it covers that uh, eclipse also crosses another Nineveh in Nova Scotia in Canada. And I think Canada will go down with the U.S. as well. So eight Ninevehs it crosses in its path across North America. I find that astonishing, really. Uh, also, there's a once in about 32 million occurrence, or 32 million years occurrence at the same time within a day or two or three of April 8th. And at least four of the planets are going to line up in one line, in a straight line, uh, not behind each other, so you only see one, but in a line across the horizon early in the morning. And I read one account that it was seven that would line up. I don't know uh, for sure on that, but they'd line up with the heaven, with the sun and the earth as well. Uh, there is an eclipse there, you know. So, uh, why that? I, I don't, I haven't thought that through enough to know what that might mean, them all lining up at that time. But the eclipse <clears throat> makes a lot of sense in that it is what forms the final stroke of the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So, I firmly believe that these are heavenly signs from God, and it gives me chill bumps to think about just where those eclipses went. From Oregon, where Herbert Armstrong started, and out South Carolina, and then the other one started in about the same place in Oregon on the coast, came across the True Promised Land, across the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in New Mexico, and out at Corpus Christi, uh, Texas, the body of Christ. And I think that both of those had to do with the church. The Salem, God will bring peace to the church, and he will bring destruction as he would have upon Nineveh and did to Israel instead uh, once again. So I think it is the final warning on the first day of the first month of the new year. April 8th, 
And from there is where we count Passover on the 22nd, the 20, evening of the 21st. So, something to watch and meditate on and kind of watch for signals that things of importance start just before or on or just soon after that third eclipse. God doesn't always say it will happen on a specific day, but it's his sign that it is beginning or has begun or is about to begin. A heavenly sign from God. And the infrequency with which these three uh, eclipses coming across a nation is into the oblivion as far as a calculation of when it would ever occur again or ever had before. A long, long time either direction. So this is a certainly once-in-a-lifetime event and really once in many, many lifetimes in the laying uh, of the planets in order there in a line uh, I read at least once in 32 million years. So uh, if it stays as it is and that happens in 32 million years, then you and I will get to observe it if we're in the kingdom of God at that time. So let's always look forward. <laughs> I said 32 million years, well, I'll never see that. And I thought, well, I might. But I think the heavens are going to be rearranged somewhat anyway, so I doubt that will occur. But it doesn't matter. All that matters is that we be what we should and protected during all this trouble that is coming and even above that, be in the kingdom of God. Because God did allow some martyrdom and will probably allow some more. I could know he's going to do it some, because he says the two witnesses will be martyred. And they'll be joined, I'm sure, by a lot of others. So, uh, protection in this life is only a temporary thing. Protection forever and eternally in God's kingdom is all that ultimately counts Period. So, just a little sermonette there. But let's go to the book of Esther today. I gave a sermon or two on this some years ago when we understood that we ought to keep Purim. But uh, Purim this year happened to fall on the Sabbath. And... I think to give meat in due season, this still being the second day of Purim, that it would be good to go through this story again. Uh, you may have in the last days or weeks read through it already, knowing it was coming, but for us to do it here together I think is a good idea in any case, because this book <coughs> essentially is a story of God's deliverance. Uh, of the Jews, and it was a very, very dramatic deliverance in the way that he caused it to come about. And right now, in end-time prophecy, we are looking for the deliverance and restoration by God, and have come, I think, to understand that the last day of unleavened bread uh, pictures Deliverance and restoration. They were delivered from Mitzrayim. Uh, they crossed the Red Sea with an enormous miracle. Uh, 
and then they were restored as a nation under God. They didn't like that after a day and had to wander till they died, except some of them went in. And we are now 38 years since the church began to wander in a spiritual wilderness with the death of Armstrong, Herbert Armstrong in January 16th of 1986. So now we've completed 38 years of spiritual confusion and wandering. I don't know if all of us have to go through 40 years of it before God allows some to go to come under his protection to build a temple. That might or might not be the case. But I can see in there that God could take out some to protect them even ahead of time to build a temple. Uh, Moses, for instance, did not go into Mitzrium after his 40-year sojourn in the desert he lived 40 years there, 40 years in the desert, and delivered them when he was 80, and then lived to 120 uh, to the end of the 40 years. But he came in ahead of time to uh, have dialogue with Pharaoh for the uh, plagues to occur and some of those issues before the deliverance actually started at Passover evening. Uh, he did minimized the amount of damage to Israel in the plagues. They only went through so many and then they were spared. But he began working toward their deliverance earlier than the 40 years is the point I wanted to make. So it might be that if this year we see some things happen, uh, we may not all have to go through the 40 years, but it might very well be <coughs> that the 90% of the church will. Because it takes a year and 18 months to rebuild Jerusalem there in Daniel. Uh, so, if it started sometime, let's say this year or even next, uh, the 40 years would be complete of the churches wandering in the desert, the wilderness, and confusion having been spewed out. So those numbers may mean something, but I'm hoping that he'll call his remnant together to begin the deliverance process, as Moses did, ahead of time. I think we could all raise our hand to that being a, a possibility we would like to see. <laughs> so I don't know whether it will work that way or not, but just a thought on the matter. <clears throat> but the book of Esther is written here in the Bible for those upon whom the ends of the earth shall come, as Paul put it. The whole Bible was written for the church today primarily. It was there, uh, not for the early New Testament Christians. It hadn't been written and canonized yet, except some letters went here and there. They didn't have anything but the Old Testament. And then the New Testament was canonized uh, toward the end of the early New Testament church, about 70 years later, around 100 A.D. And it's been available since then to 
the world to Israel. But most of that time, it was not in print, so everybody could have a copy. Uh, the printing press wasn't even uh, invented until Martin Luther's time, which was fought in the 1600s, as I recall, somewhere along about there. And disseminated so that people could even have a copy, and a lot of people even then didn't have one because of poverty and communication and everything else. So it's only been in the last couple of hundred years, especially the last hundred, 150 years, that any and everybody would have access to a Bible. So it was not really, by God, made available to most everybody until very recently. So the things that are in it, he said, were written for us at the end time. And people have poo-pooed the book of Esther saying God's name isn't in there. But who were they fasting and praying to in this book? And how did things work out the way they did without God's hand being in it? Uh, and the Jews did worship God. So uh, that's a lame excuse for saying Esther, ah, forget about it. <clears throat> and not only that, it was only written to the Jews. Well, who are the spiritual Jews today? The church. Physical Jews don't matter. Paul made that very clear. said the Gentiles are just as good as you are. They can all be grafted in. And the only ones that really count are the ones that are spiritual followers of Christ and the Father today. So when it's written to the Jews... Our ears should prick up and we should say, that's for me. And understanding that, we began to keep the days of Purim because it is speaking of a great deliverance and we are expecting the greatest deliverance ever in the coming months and years. It will be greater than the Red Sea. He made that clear. Isaiah 44 end of the chapter, he talked about how he dried up the rivers and the seas, uh, and he was about to show a deliverance that would show the whole world that he is God when he uncovers the temple treasures and the gold and the silver that is his, that has been hidden all these years, and many, many other events that I don't have time to, in today's context, to go into. We've heard most of them in the past, and probably hear them again. But these are the days of Ahasuerus here, who reigned, who reigned from India to Ethiopia. A vast expanse there, 127 provinces, uh, which would include today uh, India, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, Jordan, uh, Arabia, uh, all the way across to northern Africa, Egypt, Ethiopia, uh, and so on. So, in a day when they did not have telephone, telegraph, telewoman, teleman, or whatever, uh, they had horses and camels <laughs> to deliver messages. And that's a long way from Ethiopia to India to go by horseback. We had the Pony Express here for a short while while they finished the railroad. And they rode day and night 
uh, to get a letter from St. Louis to San Francisco. That didn't last long, uh, but they had that kind of thing back in horse days, before we had automobiles and all the modern things we have today to communicate. So it took a long time for any event to transpire, as we'll see in this book. So he sat on the throne of his kingdom in Shushan the palace. Now I do think that that was probably over there, not here. Uh, because I do believe that the second cradle of the civilization was in Mesopotamia, where Nineveh and Babylon and those cities were built. And that's probably where Abraham left to go find the city that God told him to go find, which was, I believe, over here. Uh, they are making discoveries right now that are almost hair-raising about some of the giants in North and South America finding skeletons. They have in the past, the Smithsonian uh, grabbed them and then lost them. Uh, but anyway, I do believe that that Babylon uh, was over there at this time that this is being spoken of, probably. I don't know that for sure, but probably. Anyway, in the third year of his reign, he made a feast to all his princes and servants. The power of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him. And he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a hundred eighty days. Six months. Now that's a long party. You think three, four in the morning's a long party. This one went on and on and on. I think this king probably had an ego. Uh, to want to show his glory and his riches for that many days to everybody, that anybody that mattered. And when these days were expired, the king made a feast to all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And he had it all fixed up really fancy with gold and silver and they used blue, white, like we had around our chairs back here. Thank you, those who decorated and uh, made it look like, well, a little like <laughs> the Shushan Palace. Uh, small type, but, but it was nice. And they gave them drink and vessels of gold, and each one was different than the other. So they had thousands of these golden cups, and all had been uniquely designed. And royal wine in abundance, according to the state or the wealth, the hand of the king. And the drinking was according to the law. None did compel. You did not have to drink if you did not want to drink. It was a feast. And this was a kingly, dictatorial reign. And he had the ability to tell the subjects to do anything he desired them to do. And if they did not follow what the king said, they could have their heads lopped off. So, the point here is he did not compel them to drink. It's, uh, 
Do as you please. For the king had appointed to all the officers of his house that they should do according to every man's pleasure. Drink a little, drink a lot, don't drink at all. Just enjoy the party. Also, Vashti the queen made a feast for the women. We'll see this was a little bit of a woman's lib uh, movement starting uh, based on the attitude that she evinced as this went along. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his seven chamberlains to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was a good-looking lady. And he wanted to show her off, arm candy, if you will. Uh, he had an ego, and he had been doing all this partying, and now he wanted to show off his wife. Now, a man of the ego that he had would be upset if this did not transpire. But the queen refused to come at the king's commandment. Therefore, the king was very angry, and his anger burned in him. He was about as angry as a human being can get, in other words. Before all the people... So the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, and everything that went on in the kingdom, knew the laws and the judgments, and he had these seven (coughs) princes that sat first in the kingdom, his closest cabinet, if you will, close advisors, and asked them, verse 15, what shall we do to the queen Vashti according to law? because she has not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. And then this Mamukan answered before the king that she had not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes and to all the people that are in all the provinces of the king, 127 of them, India to Ethiopia. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes when it shall be reported. The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. You know, our actions have repercussions. What we do is not done in quiet or private. This wasn't just an issue between a man and woman, or a husband and wife, or a king and the queen. This was something that would become public knowledge and had been observed by a lot of people, and it would indeed have this effect. (coughs) And that would upset all of society. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women and despise their husbands. Uh, verse 18, Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day to all the king's princes which have heard of the deed of the queen, thus that shall arise to much contempt and wrath. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate to another that is better than she. 
<clears throat> when this will be published through the empire, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both to great and small. It would maintain the way society was with the man as the leader over the wife. As we know from Scripture, not the dictator of the wife or the uh, tormentor or put-downer of the wife, but the leader, to lead her in the right way and set the example for her. So they were telling him to set the right example before everyone in the kingdom. And the saying pleased the king and the princes, and he did that. Sent letters so that every man should bear rule in his own house, and it should be published according to the language of every people. Many languages, many different races in that kingdom. Now, after these things, chapter 2, when the wrath was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. So, his wrath had subsided, but he still had this nagging concern and frustration over what she had done. It had hurt his ego badly. He had had it partly assuaged by putting her away, but yet it still rankled him to one degree or another. So, the king's servants, obviously, being around him, saw him brooding and moody and frustrated, so they had a suggestion. Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint offices in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins under Shushan the palace, to the house of the women under the custody of Hege, Hege, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them. So as kingdoms did, they had a eunuch to oversee the, uh, well, the word brothel comes to mind, the concubines. And uh, he, of course, was not tempted by any of their favors, so that's why they always used a eunuch, and that's what this guy was. So they brought them from prettiest women they could find from Ethiopia to India. I don't know how they did all that, but it was kind of a, um, what do they have in, in America and the world today, the, the, the queen of the earth, the beauty pageant, I can't even say it. I haven't watched it in 20, 30 years, so I don't know. Anyway, 40 years maybe. Let the maiden, verse 4, which pleases the king, be queen instead of Vashti, and the thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now, he already had a whole bevy of concubines that uh, the eunuch looked after, but he wanted a bride, according to their suggestion, uh, the fairest of all, the best of all, a virgin, to be brought to him to be queen. And you didn't really go to the concubines and and kind of uh, elevate one of them to queen. Uh, they were concubines. They were a lower level. So this had to be something very, very special for the king. 
Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, uh, a Benjamite. And he had gone from Jerusalem in the captivity of Nebuchadnezzar when they were taken away for the 70-year captivity. So it was not too long after this, remember the king of Persia took over uh, there at the end of the 70 years, and as it turns out, Cyrus or Darius, the commentaries don't know for sure who was who there, they even talk about two Cyruses, but in any case it was a Cyrus who allowed Nehemiah and Ezra to go and rebuild uh, Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, and it appears from history that <clears throat> uh, King Cyrus was uh, had a son through uh, Esther, who is one who delivered uh, the goodies from the palace to Ezra and Nehemiah. That seems to be the story. Uh, Esther's son would have been taught some Israelite and Jewish ways and would have been well disposed toward the Jews. So when he took over and Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah appealed to him, he was willing to bless Israel. Uh, his father had delivered them in the first place. So uh, that apparently is what occurred. And that was through the lineage of Mordecai and Esther. Anyway, he brought up Hadassah, the Jewish name, and used Esther, uh, a name of the Persians, his uncle's daughter. Because she was an orphan, she was fair and beautiful, uh, and Mordecai had taken her in and raised her as an uncle. Verse 8, So it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together to Shushan, that Esther was brought also to the king's house, to the custody of Hege, or Hegai as it is in this one, keeper of the women, and she pleased him and obtained kindness. And he, he gave her seven maidens to take care of her and see after her and wait on her hand and foot and help her... Uh, increase her beauty as much as could possibly be done. And he preferred her and gave her the best place of the house of the women. So she had the best room, the best bed, the best everything among all the women who had been brought in because she got his favor. Uh, and all that are around her received favor uh, to, or gave favor to her. And she had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. The Jews were, at that time, of course, just out of captivity, uh, not long, and uh, were downtrodden and not thought well of, having just been slaves. So it was not always best to raise your hand and say, hey, I'm a Jew. Uh, and especially in a case like this, when the king of everywhere was looking for the fairest young virgin, it wouldn't have been politically 
expedient for her to immediately tell everybody, hey, I'm a Jew, and I'm here uh, in this beauty contest. Uh, that wouldn't have gone over too well. So Mordecai was wise enough to say, don't do that. And then he walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how she did and what would become of her. <clears throat> he was nervous, in other words. That nervousness lasted a long, long time, as we're about to see. When every maid's turn was to come, was come to go into the king, after she had been twelve months according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purifications accomplished, that is, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with sweet odors, and with other things for the purifying of the women. So twelve months Mordecai paced back and forth every day, wondering how she was doing. That's a long time to get purified, I guess. You know, take a bath and put some perfume on and, hey, good to go. Uh, at least today. But this was the king of most of the known world at that time. And they went through all kinds of rituals to be sure that whoever was chosen would be absolutely pure for the king. Now, all the way through here, if you're thinking of it, there are elements of Christ and his bride, uh, not just a deliverance, but when Christ delivers and marries his bride, that is the greatest deliverance and restoration of all time. And what does he want his bride to be doing? Preparing herself. Purifying is a good word to use there. We're here to purify ourselves and to become absolutely squeaky clean and acceptable to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who will have a much greater reign than Ahasuerus ever had. So it is our responsibility to present ourselves before him as clean, as pure, as desirable as we possibly can. We're not just here to keep the commandments, lest we be killed. We're here to please the Father and the Son, to please them in every way, so that when he takes his bride to marry her, he will be absolutely, totally pleased with everything about her. Now, that cannot be fully accomplished, of course, until the resurrection and we're changed and made spirit. <clears throat> and upgraded a lot. But the purification process has already begun and the choosing has not been completed. The 144,000 and their choosing has not been completed yet. There are still some of us who are candidates for that. So, as Esther was, so are we going through purification and preparation to be presented before the king. Now you see why this is an end-time book. The parallels are staggering, really, when you see what was gone through here and what had all had to be done. Then thus came every maiden to the king... Whatsoever she desired was given to her to go with her out of the house of the women to the king's house. Whatever clothing, whatever jewels, 
whatever decoration she wanted to put on herself, she had the choice. Now, we have choices before Christ today to work with ourselves to make ourselves as desirable for Him as we can. And I hearken back to Ezekiel 16, where it says that He took her when she was in her blood, and she was not at that time a virgin. She had been a whore to the whole world. And through conversion, He has made us fair virgins before God. We have a new creation, a new life, when we are repentant and baptized and receive the Holy Spirit, which makes it possible for us to have all the past forgiven, removed, and never again be mentioned to us. And I'll have a lot to say about that in a future sermon. But we are given every opportunity to be pure and clean and acceptable to Him. And there in Ezekiel 16, once He cleaned her up, for He found her at the time of love, she was uncovered and available to whoever is what Israel has been. So He cleaned her up, washed her up, reclothed her, and put jewels upon her. Not makeup, but jewels. So he shows there that for his bride to be adorned with jewelry is not wrong. It's a natural enhancement of the beauty that he made naturally. And that kind of decoration is acceptable and desirable to Christ. So we can wear jewelry. Now, as a part of the bride, I'm going to be very careful about what jewelry I might wear uh, in my ears or my nose or my lip or wherever, uh, as a man. <laughs> uh, but men and women are all candidates for the bride, but uh, he's speaking in terms of female uh, when he talks of his bride. And female is the one that needs to wear the jewelry for the most part. Not that it's wrong for a man to put on a ring or something, but I think you get the drift there. We're not to look gay. So they all went in. In the evening she went, verse 14, and on the tomorrow she returned to the second house of the women. It was the one house in which those who were candidates were. And then after she went into the king for the night, she was put in a different house. In other words, she'd already been before him, so it was a segregation into a different place. And she would not go back to the king again unless he called for her by name. In other words, he might be seeing more and more of them come through night by night, and he might be thinking, oh, wait a minute, there was that one back there about a month ago. Woo-wee! Uh, so he could call her back if he wanted to uh, for a second interview, but only at his word. Except he delighted her in that she was called by name in the verse 14. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go into the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. 
So she decided not to be too dressed up, with too much ornament, with too much fanciness, but just what the eunuch gave her. And she was going to go on basically natural beauty then. What God had given her. <laughs> not what she decided to take herself. And are we not preparing ourselves with what God gives us? His Spirit, His Word, to prepare ourselves through. And we don't need more than that, really. We just need to utilize what He has given us to the maximum so that it is a natural beauty that we have. A product of His Spirit and the fruit of His Spirit so that we exude love and joy and peace and patience and mercy and faith and all those things that are of God, not the works of the flesh, which are of the world and Satan. Uh, big difference there between those two. And she chose to go with the natural, with the right, the good, the proper. So, <clears throat> she was taken in in the tenth month the seventh year of his reign. So this is four years after the party. Four years after Vashti had been jettisoned that she finally made it before the king. Four years. This seems like a long time. But how long did he brood and mood before they said, hey, you need yourself a new queen? And he said, okay. And then they had to find them all and get them there. And then they had to all be purified. And this thing went on and on. So, this was four years later. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So, they set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Does that remind you of Scripture? Many are called, but few are chosen. Christ chooses from an awful lot of billions of people to form his bride of 144,000. And then he gives her the crown. She has to overcome. She has to grow. She has to purify, prepare herself. And then she is going to be given the crown as queen of the king of the universe. Pretty big deal. Then the king made a great feast. We have the wedding feast ahead of us on the... Uh, before the throne of the Father on the sea of glass. And there Christ will, for the first time, drink wine since the Passover. I'll not drink of it again until I drink it with you in the kingdom. So even he, <clears throat> who normally is uh, cheered by alcohol, there is a scripture back, where is it, Deuteronomy? I don't remember exactly. Where it's wine that cheers the heart of God and men. So God can have his heart cheered with wine. He's a drinker, Baptist preacher. Uh, he likes it. And he gets a buzz from it. Drinking grape juice would not cheer his heart in the way that alcohol can. So God has deep and great emotions. And those are mentioned all through the Bible. Uh, love, anger, patience, all, all these emotions he has. 
And he made us in his image, and we have a wide range and gamut of emotions, do we not? And wine used properly can cheer our hearts, used improperly it can cause problems. I read a quote recently, alcohol is the cause of all the problems in the world, but alcohol is the solution for all of them. <laughs> not quite true, but uh, interesting quote. But it is there, it says there in Proverbs 31, to give strong drink to him that is about to perish. So it can be used if somebody is depressed, oppressed, frustrated, to cheer their heart, given a certain amount, not enough to depress them and cause them to go ahead and kill themselves, but enough to cheer their heart. So it's got to be used properly, uh, and we don't want to get off too far into that. But Christ did say he would drink wine again with us in the kingdom at the wedding supper. So he does drink wine, and his first miracle was making lots of it. Even after they were already drunk, he made good wine. Uh, so, we won't debate how drunk is drunk, or how much you can use to cheer your heart before it becomes uh, a detriment and a negative thing. That has to be controlled, and it's to a great degree dependent upon circumstances and individuals and everything else. But anyway, he made a great feast, as Christ is going to do, <coughs> called it Esther's Feast. And really, it'll be the Feast of the First Fruits and the Feast of the Marriage. Uh, Christ will be included. Uh, King Ahasuerus was included, and so was Mordecai. No, he wasn't at this point. He wasn't on the scene yet. Uh, then they were all gathered together. In verse 20, Esther had still not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had told her. <coughs> For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. She was the candidate for queen of the world, and yet she still obeyed Mordecai, her uncle, who was in the place of her father. So she honored him and respected him as her elder and as the one who raised her. And we should have a lot of respect for our parents who put up with us for whatever we were, even as we have to forgive them for some of the wrongs that they did because they didn't understand or know any better and didn't know how to perfectly raise a child. And bear in mind that God, who knows perfectly how to raise a child, still has rebellious children. Most of his children have always been rebellious against him. So those who will not be rebellious against him stand out greatly in his mind. If you are willing to submit and bow and pray and reverence God... That stands out to him because there have been billions and are today billions who show him no regard, no respect, no recognition whatsoever. So anybody who will is a real standout as he looks down from his throne in heaven today. 
So she respected her uncle. Verse 21, In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, those who were his guards and so on, <coughs> were angry at the king and wanted to kill him. And Mordecai knew about this, so he sent word to uh, Esther, and she gave word to the king, and those two were executed. Now, that kind of went unnoticed, uh, or not rewarded, as we'll see here in a little bit. Well, when they looked into it, they hanged them on a tree. Uh, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamagatha, the Agagites. The Agagites were uh, a seed of the Amalekites. If you'll remember when Joshua went into the land with Israel, uh, that was one tribe that God said to wipe out completely. Do not leave one alive, man, woman, or child. Now, he didn't say that about most of the peoples that were in the promised land when they went in. He did mention, I don't remember how many, several uh, different peoples that they were to completely wipe out, and the Amalekites were one of them. Well, lo and behold, since they did not do what God said, here arises an Amalekite named Haman, who has it in for the Jews. <laughs> now, Israel had whipped up on his people, but they had not followed through and done it as God had said to do. It is important that we do things exactly as God says and in the manner in which he instructs. Again comes the uh, thought of Moses, and God told him to speak to the rock. The rock being a type of Christ who led them through the wilderness. And in the New Testament, he is the rock, the big rock the church is founded on. Ephesians 2.20, he is the cornerstone of the church. Without a cornerstone, you don't build anything. He is the rock. And when he was crucified, he was struck and beat to a pulp. And he could see all his bones. None were broken, but they were all visible to him if he looked down. They had stripped the hide off of him terribly and struck the rock. And we are told that when we sin, we are also striking the rock. It was our sins for which he was beaten and killed. So we truly are striking him ourselves when we sin. That needs to be a primary thought in the front of our minds that we're not sinning against ourselves. We're not sinning against each other. We're sinning against God. And that statement was made. They're not sinning except against me. Because the sin all goes back to God's law, His way, and when we sin, we're sinning against him directly. And those sins are what caused him to be striped 
and kill. So get the picture. It's okay to speak to Christ. It is not okay to strike him. And when Moses struck that rock, he was going beyond what God had authorized him to do. He said, speak to it and it will bring forth water. But he was angry at the people for their rebellion and he struck it instead. Now God says we can be angry, but be angry and sin not. Now he had a right at that point to be angry and upset at a rebellious people. But in his anger, he sinned. He went beyond what God said. And presumption is the same as Satan worship or witchcraft. We must be careful. Just in those days, you had to be careful or you got hung. And here's Haman, the Agagite, who wanted to see the Jews killed. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. <coughs> now the king had said, I'm promoting Haman, and I want you to all bow to and reverence Haman. Give him great respect and honor. But Mordecai refused. Rutro. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's commandments? It became obvious that when Haman walked by, Mordecai just stood there like a poker and didn't bow and scrape and bend. And they brought it up every day, and he didn't pay any attention. And then they told Haman to see whether Mordecai matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. I kind of spit that word out. Jew is what he is. So Haman started noticing as he walked by. He had been going by and only noticing those who bowed and scraped before him. But now he'd been told, Mordecai won't do that. So he's walking along looking for the rebel. Who won't bow before me? I'm great, you know. And Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then he was angry. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He wanted to choke him to death. He wanted to kill him himself. And they had showed him the people of Mordecai, wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, not just Mordecai, but let's get them all. Now, ironically, that's what God had told Israel. Kill all the Amalekites. So, here is a descendant of the Amalekites who said, I want to kill all Jews. So, he began to make an effort to try to do that. Now, that's Satan's attitude. He wants to kill all spiritual Jews first, and he wants to kill all people secondly who even have the possibility of ever becoming God or like God and at God's throne where he was cast away from. So Haman had a satanic attitude here. Uh, then in verse 7, in the first month, the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot, 
before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month. And then Haman had that behind him, that encouragement. We've been casting these lots and they all say, you get to kill the Jews. That's what it amounted to. So he took the confidence from that and went to the king and said, there's a certain people scattered abroad that have their own laws and they're different from everybody else and they don't keep the king's law. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed and I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. <clears throat> That's like bribing Congress today. I'll give you 10,000 bucks to vote this way, or 100,000 or a million if you're important enough. Uh, same old stuff was going on back then. So he took his ring from his hand and gave it to Haman and told him, as the Jew's enemy, you write this decree and you send it to all the provinces that on a certain date, uh, well, he told him, write what you want to. And they called the scribes and they wrote it in every language. It was to go out and he sealed it with the king's ring. That made it official. They were sent by Pony Express to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. And this was published and sent out, being hastened by the king's commandment. Uh, anything the king said made a decree with his seal. Uh, this was number one in importance. Get her done. <coughs> the king's... Uh, the king and Haman sat down to drink, in the verse 15. But the city, Shushan, was perplexed. There were a lot of Jews there. And there were a lot of Jews in the palace as well, as servants and various jobs they had in the palace, as we'll see. So, Haman and the king were drinking buddies at this point. Uh, happy together, no problem. And then chapter 4, Mordecai perceived all that had been done... We can't be done. That's impossible. Huh? Well, that's normally about where I quit. Let's quickly do at least one more chapter. Uh, luck can wait. <clears throat> anyway, Mordecai perceived all that was done, rent his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes his Israel always had done at times of great distress or mourning. And went out in the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. So he was letting everybody know what had been done and what to expect. And came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. You had to be cleaned and uh, shined to go into the king's gate. And there was great mourning throughout all the provinces among the Jews, fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. 
So Esther's maids and her chamberlain came and told it to her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth, but he received it not. He was in such great distress that new clothes didn't mean a thing to him. But this decree had gone out from Haman, and even the queen didn't know about it. <coughs> and then she found out through Mordecai. Uh, and then she sent a commandment to Mordecai down in verse 5-6. So Hatak went forth to Mordecai to the street of the city which was before the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries. And he gave him a copy of the writing of the decree that Haman had written to declare it to her and to charge her that she should go into the king to make supplication and to make requests before him. So, Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai, and she spoke to him and sent word back. Verse 11, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king in the inner court who is not called... There is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. I haven't even seen the king in thirty days, said the queen. And now you're asking me to go before the king without being bidden? I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what his attitude is. He loved me, and I'm the fairest of all, and he made me queen, but he hasn't even asked to see me in 30 days. How many of us, if we're married, go 30 days without saying hi to our wives? Or more, whatever. You don't usually isolate her for 30 days. Uh, it just didn't, that just didn't happen. So, I don't know what his attitude was or why he hadn't called her in, but, she, but he hadn't, so that scared her. You know, the mankind from Adam and Eve down until the death and resurrection of Christ, that no one was allowed to go, to go before the king of the universe. God the Father, could not go. Only one, the high priest, was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies during the Ark of the Covenant days to ask for dissolution of the sins of the people on atonement. The only one allowed into the Holy of Holies, and there was a veil there, a curtain, that prevented it. You were not to go beyond that curtain upon pain of death. Even if the ark had been with the Philistines and was coming back and was not behind the veil, if you touched it, you died. Didn't you, Uzzah? God's kingdom has some similarities to even the Gentile kingdoms. God's throne is the Holy of Holies. And it was only opened up to us 
through the sacrifice of Christ himself. And that's why he said, don't even pray to me. He didn't put those words, but he said, pray to the Father. You now have access to the Father through him. So we address the Father in all our prayers, and we say at the end of it, in the name of, or by the authority of, the Christ, the Messiah. That's the only way we can go before God's throne today, is through him, but we can go through him, to him. And there is pain of death if we come any way except through Christ. That's the only way to salvation is through Him. His sacrifice and resurrection and faith in Him to work salvation in us. Because we cannot work salvation in ourselves. Of ourselves, we can do nothing. Nothing. <clears throat> you can't say raise yourself off the earth more than a couple feet on your own. You don't get anywhere and you come right back down. Only through him. And so it was, even with the queen. And we are candidates to be queen. And we cannot go to the father except through our husband-to-be. So this is an important point here for a Christian. So, Mordecai had an answer for her when she said, I'm scared. <laughs> I, I don't want to go in there. I might die. He said to Esther, Think not with yourself that you shall escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. We're all scheduled to die now, and you're also a Jew, and don't think somebody's not going to rat you out, and you're going to die as well. So if you die going into the king, you just got it a little early, but it was inevitable in any case. So quit your worrying. <laughs> We're all going to die, including you. For if you all together hold your peace at this time, then shall there be enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. In other words, Mordecai had trust in God that if Esther was not used to help save the Jews, God would cause it to come from somewhere else. So, you're in a position to do something. Go ahead and do it, lest you be cast aside and somebody else do it. But you and your father's house shall be destroyed, and who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, you cannot be presumptuous. That's worth a sermon or two or three. To take on to yourself something that God has not given for you to do. <clears throat> if you go through the prophets, the New Testament ministry and so on, they were all appointed by God or through those whom God had commissioned. Either God or Christ himself in the Old Testament telling the prophets, here, you go do this. Well, I'm just a sycamore proof picker. I can't do that. Go do it. Okay, go warn Nineveh. Oh, I, I don't want to do that. I want Nineveh destroyed because they're prophesied to destroy Israel, so I don't, I don't want any part of that. Okay, let's go see a fish. 
And let's see if we can change your attitude here a little bit. Jonah was not only asked to go do something, he was compelled to go do something. And if he had not compelled, he would have been digested right there. So he repented and got spit out and decided, with all the digestive juices turning him into the truly first white man, he went to Nineveh and preached that they needed to repent, which he did not still want to do, but he knew he had better do what God said. That's the way that went down. Now, we are the bride, and Christ, uh, hopefully, part of it. And he has commissioned us to do a work on this earth, to set an example to the world. He's only commissioned so many to teach and preach, and that has to come through a chain of command, as it did with the New Testament church, the apostles who ordained others. That still has to be done. And we are not therefore <clears throat> to be presumptuous. But she was not, in this sense, presumptuous because she had already been made queen. Now, we are candidates for queenship, but we're not there yet. So we need to be very, very careful. But she was already queen. So she had access to the king. Now, when we have been made queen... We will have immediate access to Christ day and night and will always be with him, never apart for 30 days or whatever. We'll be with him at all times. Wherever he goes, we'll go. So she was not being in that sense presumptuous. She was afraid. She was humble and meek, obviously, and timorous as she went to him. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. I'm going to do what I ought to do and if I martyred for it, so be it. If I die, I die. So she made up her mind and then fasted to whom? Moloch? No, they fasted to God in heaven. And all the Jews did. So we see in Joel and other places, when times get really tough, we're to declare a fast. We're to turn to God with all our hearts and pray for deliverance. And the last day of unleavened bread is the one holy day we never understood a type for. And when you look at the whole thing there with the Red Sea and them being restored as a nation not of slaves but of independence under God, that is the greatest restoration, deliverance and restoration to date other than the sacrifice of Christ, which opened deliverance and restoration to Israel first and then the Gentile. But that has not even yet been completed. <clears throat> that has only been started. He is the Alpha, the beginning, 
and the end. And it doesn't end until atonement when we marry the king. So we have that to look forward to if we live. She had, hopefully, deliverance and restoration if she lived. So the parallels here are truly significant between Mordecai and Esther and God and us and Haman representing Satan's kingdom. Uh, Great lessons here to be learned. I was going to finish this and go on to something else, but maybe maybe I'll continue it next week because we need to finish it up and draw some parallels between the story of Esther, which is not important to most people, but has a great deal of importance for you and me.